Well, hey there, everybody. My name is Brock, and it is my great joy to kick off our week together by spending some time here in this place and in this moment just reflecting together on our life with God. You know, every time our church gets together, there is so much that I love and appreciate about this family. But one of the things that I always notice is that there is such a wide variety of people with different backgrounds and spiritual experiences. Eric, I'm super echoey up here. If there's, I don't know if you can hear it or not, but. Um, so when we get together, I mean, between our in-person gatherings and our online campus, those who are tuned in virtually to participate with us, the Heritage family is a really diverse group of people. And among other things, our diversity means that we come to this gathering. We show up in this moment with our own unique hopes and expectations for what church family is like. Now, I don't have to tell you that when expectations are mismatched, sometimes that can result in some really humorous situations, which reminds me of a favorite commercial that I've seen in the last couple of years. It was a Snickers commercial, and the setup is that there's this group of friends who's getting together for their fantasy football league draft night, and the scene has all of these guys that are sitting together in a room, and they're wearing fan gear from their favorite NFL teams, and they've got snacks and drinks, and they've got their laptops out because they're researching players, and there's this giant whiteboard that's ready to record which player is picked by which team, and then the doorbell rings. And when the host of the draft night, the fantasy draft night, goes to answer the door, he finds his friend Ben standing there on the porch in full costume dressed as a centaur, which is like this, you know, mythical creature with the upper body of a man and the four legs of a horse. And there's this awkward pause between them as they're like wondering what's the next thing that's about to happen. And then the guy that's dressed as a centaur says, hey, I, I think I got my fantasy nights mixed up, you know, like it, it's an honest mistake. It could happen to anybody, right? I mean, he had a totally different understanding than all of his buddies about what their fantasy get-together was going to be about, and it's this classic case of mismatched expectations. But sometimes differing expectations don't turn out to be so funny. Sometimes when our expectations are so far from each other, so vastly different, sometimes that can lead to real disappointment in our life together. Now, life together is what we're talking about right now here at Heritage. For the last couple of weeks, I've been sharing a series of messages that we've called Together. And in order to refresh your memory or just bring you up to speed, let me tell you that this entire series has been about the relational aspects of our faith. We've been learning together that faith is not an individualized endeavor, and the spiritual journey is not a solo trip. The life of faith is intended to be lived in community. In fact, the primary claim of this series that we keep coming back to over and over is that our relationship with God is linked to our relationships with people. Being in community with being in community with other believers helps our relationship with God grow. But on the other hand, our relationship with God, having true faith in God, changes the way that we interact with other people. It's this reciprocal, cyclical kind of effect where our vertical 
excuse me, our vertical relationship continues to impact our horizontal relationships, but the opposite of that is also true. Our horizontal relationships have an impact on our vertical connection with God, and that's the way that it was designed to be. But I suspect, and you don't have to raise your hand if you like immediately identify with this, but I suspect that there are some people who would rather spend most of their energy and emphasis and attention on the vertical relationships and would rather not worry quite so much about the horizontal aspects of faith. I think there's a temptation, and it's stronger for some of us than for others, but there's a temptation to just make faith be a private thing, a quiet thing. We have our own personal relationship with God, and that's the real focus of our spiritual effort and energy. We have our own expectations about our, what our faith journey should look like. But I believe that for most of us, our expectations sometimes get out of sync with what God has dreamed up for us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit might be leading us into a next step in our faith, a next connection in our faith, a next relationship in our faith that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves and I think that happens most frequently in the in the context of our horizontal relationships but today I want us to look at a story together from the life of Jesus where Jesus lays out clearly one of the primary objectives that ought to be a part of every Christian life in fact in this story Jesus is setting the tone for what your life and my life ought to really be about. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I'd be thrilled for you to join me or follow along on the screens as we're in the New Testament book of John. And this is a story about a time when Jesus and his closest friends were having a dinner party. John chapter 13, it's, it's buried in the middle of this book that one of Jesus' closest followers named John wrote to tell the story of Jesus' life on earth. And when John wrote this down, he wrote it down thinking about people that he would never have a chance to meet until the fullness of time. He wrote it down thinking about people who would come after him, maybe even people like you and me. And he wrote it down in the hopes that we would come to believe in Jesus and believe in what Jesus had said and done. But John is more than the author of this story. He's more than the writer of this chronicle. He's also one of the participants in the story. In fact, at this dinner party that they're having, John is sitting right next to Jesus. He's sitting next to Jesus at the table while they're eating. In fact, all, all 12 of Jesus' closest friends, his closest followers, his disciples, they are all there. It's a holiday gathering, and as far as we know, they're having a great time. But each one of them is sitting there with a different set of expectations and impressions and opinions. They're all sitting there with their own concerns about the future and their own perceptions about one another and their own expectations for their time together. And their attitude impacts the way that they interact with each other. Here's a little sample of what it looked like. Down on one end of the table you had Peter. Now Peter was a doer. He was a man of action. Jesus had asked Peter along with John to arrange this meal for the group and so Peter had secured the location. He'd made all the preparations. He may have even cooked the meal himself but he didn't mind because he was happy to do all of that work for Jesus his Lord but at this dinner he's probably tired. When it comes to sitting down and finally getting to eat, P 
Peter is exhausted. Maybe he's going through his mental checklist again. Maybe he's wondering if he remembered everything for the meal. Peter's a guy that likes to make things happen. He's capable and he's faithful and he's self-reliant. And then there's James and John, two brothers. John, who we've already mentioned, who's sitting right next to Jesus. And you have to wonder if maybe everybody else at the table, every time they look at James and John, they remember that sometimes those guys can be a little bit arrogant. Sometimes they can be a little bit full of themselves. In fact, recently there was a moment when James and John had approached Jesus and asked him for this odd, bold favor. They said, we want to have the best seats in the house whenever your mission is accomplished. They said, Jesus... When your kingdom has come in all of its glory, can, would you go ahead and let us have assigned seats to be the ones right next to you on your right and on your left? And it made all of the other disciples pretty frustrated because it wasn't like James and John had risen above and done something that nobody else had done. It wasn't like they had done something to create or, or, or earn this unique position. They were just trying to call it first, you know. It was like calling shotgun, you know. They were like, we, we want to sit by you. Jesus and they had the disciples had all argued about this one together and Jesus had to stop their argument and say hey listen status is not the priority that you're supposed to be seeking but then here that night at the dinner guess who's sitting right by Jesus John and probably James too I mean then at the other end of the table you've got Judas who has not been very dependable as of late this is the guy who voluntarily serves as the treasurer for the group but somehow ever since he signed up for that job he's always got more extra spending money than everyone else he's not exactly a stickler for ethics and it and he isn't really bought into this whole Jesus thing in fact he's already kind of on his way out he started to check out mentally and emotionally from what this group has been up to and there's at least eight other disciples sitting around the table and they've all got their own concerns and their own priorities that we don't learn much about but then there's Jesus and Jesus has certainly got a lot on his mind at this particular dinner he may be the only one in the room who has even a clue about what the next few hours have in store he knows that he's likely to be arrested and that every friend that's sitting around the table with him acting like they're tight is probably going to abandon him within the next few hours and he knows that he's gonna suffer he knows that eventually he's gonna die he can see the writing on the wall and if anyone had reason to check out on the conversation that night it was Jesus I mean he should have been entitled to a little bit of self-pity but the way John tells the story that's not how it went John chapter 13 beginning in verse 1 it says before the Passover celebration Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father now there is a lot of theological baggage like attached to that statement that's like a heavy sentence right there with a lot of we could talk for hours about all the lessons and the prophecies and the you know details about all of that but what this is saying is Jesus was aware that he was coming close to the culmination of his life's mission that he was nearing the moment when he would finish the work that God had called him to do and it said he had loved his disciples this is the second half of verse 1 he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end then verse 2 says it was time for supper 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, who we've already spoken about a little bit, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. All right. So there's a lot of stuff that's in motion. There's a lot of stuff that's happening. This is not just any other night. But then I want you to don't miss the next three verses that we're going to read together, verses 3, 4, and 5. Because I want to tell you that these three verses, not only are they my favorite part of this story, and I would love to just do an entire sermon on this, but we're going to skip that today. These three verses may be some of, some of my favorite verses in all the Scripture because they give us a picture of the heart of God that maybe we don't always recognize quickly. Okay, so don't miss. Verse 3 says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and that he would return to God. This is, this is John saying Jesus was fully aware that he had done what God had asked him to do, that he was completely safe in his identity as God's chosen one. And because he knew that, because he was so confident in that, because of the authority that he had, verse 4 says, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around his waist. Now, this is a scene that if you can picture it in your mind's eye, you could imagine some of the feelings, some of the questions that might be in circulation around that table at the moment. I don't know how long it took everybody to notice what was happening. I, I imagine that maybe there were some one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one kind of conversations that were going on around the table, but then suddenly, one by one, people started to notice that Jesus had gotten up and was over in the periphery doing something. What is he doing over there? And, the, and they, they start to take notice, and I imagine that it was uncomfortable to watch. What did it feel like to be the recipient of the first foot washing? from Jesus. What did it feel like to be at the end of the line and know that you were going to be number 12? Could you hear a pin drop every time Jesus dropped to his knees and took each foot in his hands? Did anybody say anything? Was there nervous laughter? Were they making eye contact with each other saying, "What what is this?" Did Andrew, did Andrew like look around thinking, well, maybe there's another basin. Maybe I could at least help, you know, or something. Maybe Thaddeus was feeling guilty for not thinking of doing this first. We don't know what everybody else in the room was thinking that night, but it's pretty clear that if everyone in the room needed their feet washed, nobody else had felt compelled to get up and do it. Now, they lived in a culture, in a society, in a situation where their feet got dirty just over the course of their normal day-to-day -day routine and activity. And maybe, maybe some of them had thought about washing their own feet on the way into the room that night. Maybe some of them were frustrated that Peter and John, who prepared this dinner, hadn't arranged to have a servant there to do the foot washing for them. But amidst all of their thoughts and opinions and expectations, Jesus was not in the least bit frustrated. Frustrated. Jesus wasn't disappointed. In fact, Jesus was unhesitating about this. It was as if Jesus had planned on washing their feet. And I wonder how it would have felt 
We don't know what all of the disciples were feeling as they were watching their teacher and Lord take on a servant's job, but we do get to read about how Peter felt about it, and Peter was highly uncomfortable with this entire idea. Here's what John says, chapter 13, verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, it makes me think Peter wasn't the first one. You know, We don't know. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? Is this really happening right now? And Jesus replied, you, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. And Peter protested that and said, no, no, no. You will never wash my feet. You don't have to do that. This is not how this is supposed to go. And Jesus replied and said, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. To which Peter exclaimed, well, then if that's how it works, then wash my hands and my head too, not just my feet. You see, Peter was uncomfortable because he was trying to be respectful. He felt like foot washing was too menial a task for Jesus to be doing. Of course, he himself had not jumped up to wash the group's feet either, and so maybe he thought it was beneath him too. But Jesus makes something very clear in his response. He says, Peter, this symbolic act is meant to unify you and me in a really significant way. Peter says, well, that's what I want. I want to be unified with you, Jesus. So if that's how this works, then wash my hands and wash my head too. But he was missing the point. You see, Peter didn't need a shower. He needed to see love in action. He needed to see love being demonstrated through service. If you read on in verse 12, John says that after he finished washing all of their feet, Jesus put on his robe again and he sat back down at the table and he asked them this rhetorical question, do you understand what I was doing just now? He knows their answer is no, they don't understand that. Verse 13, he continues speaking. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am, and since, don't miss that, because I am your Lord and teacher, since I am your Lord and teacher, I'm teaching you something important. Since I'm your Lord and teacher, I have washed your feet and you ought to wash each other's feet. He says, I've given you an example to follow. You do as I have done to you. Everybody's mouth hits the floor. Everybody's jaw hits the floor. As they imagine what that would require of them. As they imagine the lengths that they would have to go to follow the part of Jesus' example that they already knew. Jesus says, verse 16, I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. He says, you're not too good for this. He says, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Jesus is trying to tell his followers in the waning hours of his earthly life and ministry, Jesus is trying to tell his followers service is not about status. When you're following Jesus' lead, when you're actually living into a disciple life behind Jesus' example, you don't help 
people out of obligation. You help people because you see an opportunity. And when Jesus looked around the room that night, he saw an opportunity. He saw a bunch of dirty feet. But he saw something behind that. He saw a bunch of religious people who needed an example of what it looks like when you live out your faith in the context of relationship. He saw a group of people, Peter, Judas, James and John. He saw a group of people who had been jockeying for position, who were some of them were planning to jump ship for a better opportunity. He saw people who sometimes resented one another. It was a table full of people who were looking to either get promoted or find another opportunity. But Jesus says, if you really want things to go well for you, if you really want God's best for you, if you really want to experience God's blessing, then follow my lead and find ways to help each other, he says. He says, you'll build your relationships on putting other people and their needs ahead of your own if you really want to be my followers. He says, this is the life that God blesses. And the question that I've got to ask myself is, could this possibly be true? Could this possibly really be the way that the universe is wired? Could it possibly be the reality that the people who serve others are actually the ones who receive God's great blessing. Some of you know the name Malcolm Gladwell. He's a best-selling author, and he's a Christian. And earlier this year, he wrote about his recent experience attending a wedding in Canada. And it was a, a wedding in the part of the Mennonite community. And Mennonites, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's, it's a, a small subset of Christianity. Mennonites are a group of Christians who have historically emphasized peace and service in their communities, which explains what Gladwell saw when he went through the food-serving line at this wedding reception. Here's what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this wedding. He says, as I went to get food at the reception after the service, the people serving the meal were the members of the wedding party. He said, the bride's father was handing out plates, and the bride's sister was assembling the pulled pork sandwiches, and the groom was giving out the coleslaw. And he says, and then at the very end of the line, when I got to the end of the table, there was the bride who had put on an apron over her wedding dress, and she was serving mac and cheese. He says, the receiving line of the wedding had been turned into a service line. Now, I've got to tell you, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've been to a bunch of weddings, and I've seen a lot of bride and grooms come up with some creative elements to include in their ceremony to make things memorable and special. I've seen unity candles and sand ceremonies. I've seen weddings that took time for an entire praise and worship service. I've seen couples that take communion together to invite God to be at the center of their relationship. But in all of my years and all the weddings I've been to, I've never seen a bride put on an apron over a wedding dress, not once never seen it. 
I've never seen a groom standing there with a big slotted spoon in hand making sure that everybody who came to his wedding got a serving of coleslaw. Do you want it on the sandwich or do you want it on the side? You can just hear him asking. I've never seen a bride and a groom give themselves assignments to serve the guests at their wedding. And I think it's because at every wedding that I've ever been to, the bridal party and the family, they all want to make sure that the bride and the groom feel like the guests of honor, right? They all want to make sure that the couple is free to enjoy, free to mingle, free to visit, free to celebrate, and free to be unbothered and unworried about all of the needs of their guests. But at this wedding that Malcolm Gladwell went to, it was different. At this wedding, the bride and the groom knew something that they could only have learned by paying close attention to Jesus. They knew that serving is the way to feel like the guest of honor. They knew that in that situation, when they had the final say on all of the decisions for the day, when they had everybody's attention, when all eyes were focused on them, they knew that the thing that God would smile at the most would be for them to serve. And it reminds me, of those three special verses that I called your attention to earlier in this chapter, John chapter, chapter 13, verses 3, 4, and 5, where Jesus knew that all eyes were on Him. Jesus knew that God had blessed Him with authority. Jesus knew that He had the power to do whatever He wanted to do. And because He knew that, He took off His robe, put on a towel, poured water, and washed feet. This is a picture of who God is, and this is a picture of what God appreciates and what God has designed us to be. You see, the bride and groom at this wedding, when they were serving coleslaw and mac and cheese, they were doing it because they had learned that servanthood is the authentic path that leads to fulfillment. Serving other people is actually the way that we experience God's pleasure and God's direction and God's inspiration and God's provision the best. This bride and groom knew that becoming what God created you to be means that sometimes you wear an apron over your wedding dress. But they also knew, they also knew that they weren't sacrificing anything by taking on those serving roles they knew that service is the surest path to receive God's blessing. And that explains why they made serving others the central part and the centerpiece of the happiest day of their lives. If you were to flip over to Acts chapter 20, you would find some of the history of the earliest years of the church. And there's a moment in there when the Apostle Paul quotes words of Jesus that we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. Paul said, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Which means you'll be happier when you give than when you receive. And later, that same Paul, when he wrote a letter to the church in Galatia, the, the letter that we expounded on a little bit more in depth last week, and he was telling these people about their freedom in Christ and how it relieves us from the burden of living under the law, Paul wrote this statement. He said, You have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom 
to satisfy your sinful nature, which means don't use your freedom for yourself. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. See, Paul's saying, listen, you, you are free. But freedom in and of itself, that's not the point of this journey we're on. Because when we think of freedom, we think of no obligations, right? When we think of freedom, we think of being able to use our time and our energy and our resources the way we want. We think of owing nothing to anybody. We think of being able to make all of the choices that feel most comfortable for us. That's what we think when we think of freedom. No responsibilities, no obligations. But in Paul's mind, freedom was given to us for a reason. And now, because of Christ, we are free to serve others instead of constantly feeling obligated to serve ourselves. That's what this freedom is about. You know, if you recognize the name Malcolm Gladwell from the wedding story, it's probably for some of the other writings that he's done, including what I think is his most famous book. It's called The Tipping Point. And the subtitle of this book is How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference. And in that book, he describes how every big movement or idea or trend or social behavior, somewhere along the line, there's a tipping point where it starts to grow exponentially. It starts to catch on like wildfire. And I want to tell you, I believe the kingdom of God is poised to spread like wildfire in the midst of every gathering of Jesus' disciples. I believe that every church has an opportunity to see God's kingdom spark a flame in our midst. But I believe there's a tipping point in church. There's a tipping point that only happens when the members of a church family realize this church doesn't exist just to feed me. This church doesn't exist just to shovel spiritual nourishment in my direction. There's a tipping point that happens when the members of the church family start to realize that we are actually here to serve. When I was in high school, I worked at a big box retail store, kind of place that every one of you has been to before. And if I was going in there as a customer... Just on a normal day when I wasn't working, I'd walk in the main front doors just like everybody else, and I'd go and, you know, walk around just like everybody else and find what I was looking for. But on the days I was working, there was a different entrance for me. There was a doorway about 50 yards to the left of the main entrance, and you had to have a special keypad code to get in there. And it was the entrance to the office and the entrance where the time clock was, but it was the employee entrance. It was the service entrance. You know what a service entrance is, right? Usually it's back in the back near the loading dock. It's where all the servers enter the building. It's not the main entrance. It's not the place where the red carpet is. It's not the place where they're playing the pretty music. It's not the place where everything looks nice. It's the place where you come in because you're there to be a helper. And you're there to be a servant. You're there to help everybody else. And I got to thinking about it this week. You know, this building doesn't have a service entrance. We don't have one particular door that's just, you know, for the, those who are here to help everybody else. But I wonder, I wonder if we could make a mental switch and start to think about every door to this building 
as the service entrance. I wonder if maybe internally in our mind we could start picturing that whether we walk in from down that way on the children's wing into the building or from the back side up the, up the sidewalk or whether we came in one of these front entrances or down by the studio, I wonder if every time we put our hand on a handle on the door of this church building, we might think to ourselves, you know, I'm walking in the service entrance here because I'm, I'm here to serve. I'm here to be a help. I'm here to do for somebody else. I wonder if every single door, except maybe that front one up there where the, we call it our guest entrance, maybe every other door around here would be a service entrance for those of us who are part of this church family. And we'd show up and we'd walk in and we'd think to ourselves, you know, I'm walking in the service door today because that's what I'm here to do. I think if that, if that kind of shift of attitude if that kind of change could be made in, in just in the way that we see ourselves engaging with one another, I think that's the path to a tipping point where the kingdom of God starts to spread among us like wildfire that's out of control. That's the way that God utilizes and blesses His people. You think it could be true? You know, every time we get together, we remind ourselves of the story that is our origin story. And part of that story is in that chapter we just read. Because within just a few hours of that dinner, Jesus was on his way toward the cross-shaped service door that changed history for you and for me. Jesus was on his way toward that service entrance and he chose to walk in there. He made a decision to walk in there and he said, I'm going to do it because I'm going to serve all of these others that I love so much. But he also did it because he knows that's the kind of life God blesses.